Morning, family. Everybody doing well? So good to see you this morning and to be together. And I cannot but help just in my heart be appreciative of just this row of people sitting here. These are some of our retired pastors that, uh, and we have especially Um Christentani Anakronier. They were on staff at the church here many, many years ago, and they've come to visit us this morning. But with all of these special young people, it's so good to have you with us this morning. Won't you give them a round of applause? It's, it's so good to be part of a family, isn't it? Now, I'd like you to just take a moment and uh, look around the auditorium a little bit this morning, if you don't mind. You can just sort of look around a bit, and I'm doing this for a reason, because roughly, it seems like there's a little bit less people than we would normally have on a Sunday here this morning, but we'd probably be roughly 20 times the amount of people that were in the upper room as we read in the book of Acts. You know, there were 120 people in the upper room. So we're roughly about 20 times, if my maths does not uh, leave me at this time of the day, the amount of people in this room. Isn't that quite a thought? Those 120 people, as far as we understand, there may be a couple of people that didn't make it to the upper room that morning or that day, but as far as we understand, when Jesus finished his ministry, you know, 40 days after he left, this is what was left over, 120 people. 120 people that received the charge from Jesus to go into all the world and to make disciples of all men. 120 people. Today, more than 2,000 years later, here we are. We are the direct descendants of those 120 people. Not only us, but all over this nation, all over this globe today, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are worshiping the Lord Jesus because of those 120 people. In fact, today it's said that there's a billion people that profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alive on our planet today. All direct descendants of those 120 people. What an amazing thought. Particularly if you think those 120 people weren't gathering in that upper room with a great sense of hope and faith and excitement about what is to come, but actually had a little bit more fear, concern, not quite knowing what to expect. Things weren't all that clear for them at that stage. But yet something happened, and we know the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that turned that group of people into this phenomenal, effective army for the Lord Jesus Christ that literally has changed the world. Now if you add to it some of the challenges they faced in their time, it all the more makes it so much more special what they were able to do. Because we could sit here today and think, well, perhaps the world was just ready at that time for this group of 120 people and their message. Perhaps everything was perfectly set up for them and, and they just sort of slipped into a moment in history and everything just clicked and it worked. But I want to remind you that neither the Jewish people nor the Roman people were really, really ready to receive this message that these 120 people had. We understand, and I don't want to talk too much about the fact that the Jews weren't ready. I mean, they just killed Jesus as a, as a sign of saying they don't, they're not ready for this message. But even in the Roman world, that was the Roman Empire that so dominated in the world at that time, they were not ready for this message. 
There's lots of writings about what life was like in the times of the Romans, but from a book by Paula Fredrickson, if you want to go read it, it's called Christians in the Roman Empire, and you can find it online also, Christians in the Roman Empire. She, she does a great job of explaining what the religious life was like in the first century where these 120 people were now sent into go and send this message. The Roman people obviously was a, was a mixed mix of all nations. And as the Roman Empire grew, every nation came into the Roman Empire and continued to bring their gods and, and their habits and their culture into the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire became this smorgasbord of so many different expressions. And part of what made the Roman Empire work is that they allowed for so many different convictions and persuasions in terms of people's religious practices. In general, the Roman in the Roman Empire, people worshipped on two levels. They had private worship and they had public worship. Private worship was when in each family they would have an altar which they would worship to their particular God or gods that they particularly held to and believed in, they would worship. Now, if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you'll see in the movie how he would do that. He'd had a shrine and he'd have little dolls of his family members and he would keep on presenting them to his gods and that was typical practice of the day. But not only was worship done in private, but it was also done very publicly. You see, we live in a time where, where religion is, is sort of held on the outskirts of our society. We believe that it is fine for every person to worship, but it is some, something that is done you know, on your own and it's your conviction. In the, in the time of the Romans, it was far more that worship infiltrated and was part of everyday life. Now, people, worship, people may have generally worshipped one divinity above any other, but they had hundreds of gods that filled the gap between this big divinity that they worshipped and humankind, and their responsibility was to keep these gods happy, to find ways to appease these gods, to pay homage to these gods, to make sure that these gods were content with them as their people. Everything in Roman society had a God attached to it. Whether it was your orchard, there was a God to your orchard. Whether it was your home, your home had a God attached to it. Whether it was the, the streets, every street had a God that was attached to that street. Crossings, for instance, became major religious places of practice in Roman Empire. Every time two streets crossed, there would be an altar or a little bit of a, a shrine that would be held there. So when people traveled to Rome, for instance, one of the things that they did is every so often when they came to a crossing, they would stop and have a time of worship to whatever the God of that crossing was. Every government building had a God that was associated with it. So every garden, public garden, had a God that was associated with it. And it became your responsibility that when you entered into these places, that you would then pay respect to that God. You see, the Roman person, while they may have worshipped their own gods more than any others, did not have a problem in including anybody else's God. It was the practice of the day. You know the saying that goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So literally what was expected, that whenever you went into a town or a village or a city, you would have to worship the God of that city. If you did not do it, you would cause great embarrassment to the people of that city and potentially great problems. Because if you didn't respect their God, their God could become angry with them and not bless them, not bless their harvests, not bless their childbearing or whatever it is. 
Um, it, it was almost like a, I had this experience a number and number of years ago when we were actually, when I was in Year of Your Life, a Year of Your Life leader, we went on an outreach to Zimbabwe and um, we uh, traveled by a houseboat up Kariba. And uh, we spent the days going to these little villages and uh, places where, you know, there's very little civilization, no power, no infrastructure. And we would go to the village in the day and tell them that night we were going to come and have a service for them. And in the evening, we would come as our team, and we would go and have a service for the people. And um, the, they had these little kerosene lamps. That was the only light there was. And we would, we would do drama, and then I would preach the, the message. And one night, we were in one of these little villages, and I was preaching a message. And in the middle of my altar call, as I was asking people to surrender their lives to Jesus, we just heard this thunderous crack of a tree breaking at the edge of the village, and the next moment, everybody in my audience ran away. It's the best altar call I've ever made. Everybody just <laughs> disappeared, because the, the noise was an elephant that was coming into the village. And so the villagers ran to go and you know, hide and not to cause the, the elephant problems, but now we were so excited about this elephant that we ran towards the elephant to go and see the elephant, and uh, the villagers got very angry with us. And they said, we are upsetting the elephant, and when we leave, that elephant's going to come back, and he's going to cause them great damage because of the way we treated the elephant. It was the same kind of idea in Roman society. If you came into a home or a, a public place or a town or a village, and you didn't respect the God of that place, you would cause the locals, you could potentially cause the locals great problems. So everybody worshipped all the time. Whenever you went into a garden, you would first find out by the little shrine that was there, who's the God of that, this garden? How do I worship and make sure that this God is paid, is, 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 is duly respected so that I cannot cause problems for the people of this area? So this is what Roman society was like. So in the midst of this comes this 120 people. And they have a message. And their message is this, there is one God, one salvation. And they started proclaiming this to their community, that you can't get saved, life is not going to work, you're not going to find your happiness, your joy, your goodness in life, you're not going to have a relationship with God by doing all of the stuff that you're doing, you can only come to God through Jesus Christ. Now the Roman people didn't respond well to this message. They didn't like this message. They didn't like this one God above all and the only God. And they certainly didn't like the fact that the, the Christians started refusing to bow down to other gods and pay respect to other gods. So you wouldn't invite a Christian to come to your house because he would offend your God. Literally became the problem for the Christian people. So if we understand that, for instance, we understand all the more how challenging it was for these Christian people in their times to bring the gospel. Now, we live in a nation that is said to be 80% Christian. We live in an environment where it is relatively easy for us to proclaim the gospel. We're starting to feel here and there, ever so slightly, we're starting to feel some pressure from our culture and some of the things that we believe as Christians when we proclaim it, people don't respond to it necessarily so well. But in general, we live in quite, I mean, if you watch the budget speech the other day, isn't it phenomenal that our finance minister can quote the scriptures at least three times in the budget speech? We still live in a 
very Christianized society, much unlike these people were. But yet they were able to go and transform their society. They couldn't invite people to church. It was very risky to invite your neighbors to come to the services if you had a church service because the, the Christians for a long period of time were under threat that their properties would be taken. They could be captured and taken into prison because of this thing that they held that there's only one God. They, could, they didn't have big events. They didn't rent out lofters for Jesus and have big events and call everybody to come together and see the Christians and yeah, here we are as the Christians. The Christians were very undercover, clandestine, very quiet when it was left up to them. Obviously, when the miracles happened, like we read in the book of Acts, attention was brought onto the Christians and it would cause them great struggle and great problems. So socially, they were not in a great environment to just easily share this message. It wasn't a marketing-friendly environment. So how is it? What did they have? What allowed them to be so effective in sharing this message of the gospel that was so socially unacceptable and awkward in the time? But before I get there, I want to read for us our scripture for the day. It's John 17. And John 17 is a very precious portion of the New Testament and all of scripture. John 17 is a big part of it is where Jesus prays for us. He prays for those 120 people and he prays for us, every follower of his that would come. And if we're going to read, if you don't mind, can we read the whole section of scripture? It's about from verse 6 to 19, I think, so it's about 14 verses. So we're going to have it on the screen, but you're also welcome. It would be great if you follow in your own uh, Bible translation device or whatever you have. John 17, Jesus speaks to his Father, our Father. Verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture might be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them to your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of, the, of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For, their, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Amazing prayer that Jesus prays for us. If you think about how he prays that in, an, in a context of a world that will not be friendly towards his people. 
in a world that his people would experience opposition, and we've spoken about that before, and would experience the, the resistance and would experience the world coming against them. And he prays, and he prays those words where he says, Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, that you hold them, that you protect them while they are in the world. What an amazing prayer that he prays for us. I mean, we would love it. If Jesus just prayed for us that we would be happy, blessed, healthy, strong, vital, no challenges, you know. And, and I mean, I know that, that there's a gospel going around that as Christians we should be these people that everybody envies. Because we drive the biggest cars, we stay in the biggest houses, we seemingly have no problems. Whenever a Christian has a problem, it somehow diminishes the gospel. Some people believe. That's not quite what I read here. Now, I believe in God's blessing. I believe that when we pray, we can see miracles. I believe in healing. I believe that people can be raised from the dead. They don't have to wear white suits. <laughs> How many of you believe that, gee, people can be raised from the dead? Amen. And that's why we don't have to have gimmicks. And we don't, ha you know, we don't have to do funny things because we believe in these things. We believe in miracles. But we also believe that we have been sent into this world. And that when we face challenges, that can be as much as a, of, a, of a testimony and a witness to this world. And I find it fascinating here that Jesus says these words. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the, the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. So in one breath, he uses the word hate and joy together. He says, while we're being hated, may our joy be made full. That's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. Now I focus on that because I think in there lies a big part of the secret of what it is that made God's people throughout history and even in our time so effective in sharing a message that is really hard for people to receive. It's the joy that we have in this message. And I want to show you an example of that. When Jesus testified to somebody, when Jesus evangelized somebody, how did he do it? What happened in that situation? We don't have a lot of time, so I can't unpack it all. It would be great if you go read John 4 and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. You know the story. In the middle of the day, Jesus and his disciples are traveling and uh, Jesus is tired. He's a little bit, had a, too much of, too many people, just too much helping people. He's hungry, he's tired. So he, they get outside of a village in Samaria and he says to his disciples, won't you go in into that place in the town where they sell the chicken that is so healthy that, uh, you know, it comes from South Africa, you know that place. Won't you go buy chicken there, such nice, and I would like the peri-peri chicken. Won't you go get me some chicken in the town? Do you know which place I'm talking about? I'm not allowed to say the name. So, okay. There's one on the, road, on the way down here, down the road. So, so stop there. So Jesus says, won't you go and get me some of that chicken? I just want to sit here. It's the middle of the day. There shouldn't be anybody around. So while Jesus is sitting there, the disciples go off to town, take the money, and off they go. They're going to go buy some of that peri-peri chicken for Jesus. A woman comes. 
Now, she was also coming that time of the day because she also didn't want to speak to anybody. She also wanted to just get water and not have an interaction with any person because her life was not really a life that she was very proud of. She was a woman of ill repute. She was a sinner. So she comes to the well, and now there's Jesus. And it's a bit awkward. At first, they just ignore each other. They don't look at each other because he's... A Jewish man, rabbi, he's not allowed to talk, to even look at her. He's not allowed to have any interaction with her. Awkward. Here he is sitting. She's just trying to get water. But you know how the story goes. Somehow they strike up a conversation. And Jesus starts sharing with this woman the most amazing revelations that we are so thankful that he said to her and that John recorded it because it, we learn so much of, from so, about so many things, worship, for instance, about what, how Jesus spoke to her and what he said to her. But then he also goes and he starts talking to her about herself. And, and, and he says, where's your husband? And she says, oh, you know, she makes some, some excuse. She says, yes, you speak well because you do not have one husband. You actually have five. Terrible, awkward, eh? Have you ever had a conversation like that? Where somebody's trying to neatly dance around their sin and you just go, Pfft, and you reveal and you make it known to them that you actually know what's really going on in their lives, even though they try and act like it's, you know? Have you ever been like, if you've been on a pastor's visit and you come to the people's house and as you want to knock on the door, you hear the fight inside? Hey, Pastor Sherry, has that ever happened to you? Or you're walking in the, in the mall and you see a husband and wife that members of the church and then you can see they're not having a happy discussion. They're going at it. Or you're driving to church on a Sunday morning and the car in front of you, you recognize and you know it's members of the church and you can see the fingers that are being waved at one another. And then, you know, when you're knocking on the door and then they, suddenly it gets quiet inside. And they go, you can hear through the door. And then they open the door. Hello, Pastor. So nice to see you. We were just talking about you. Like, hey? And then as the pastor, all you want to do is pretend with them. But I, I heard the story of a pastor once that said to them, I'm so glad I came. It seems like you need me right now. This is what Jesus, he's having this interaction with this woman. Suddenly her life is laid bare. No pretense, no covering up. She's like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God sees right through them. Right there she stands and he speaks these words to her. The next moment, the disciples return. And they've got those brown paper bags with that symbol bird on it, yes. Birdie symbol on it, smells whoo, lovely. They couldn't wait, they've eaten, so they just got one bag for Jesus and they come and they bring it to Jesus and they say, here's your food and they look at the woman and they think, now what's going on here? This is, not, this is not good. Why is he talking with a woman? So they bring him the bag. He says, it's okay. I have food that you know nothing about. They thought, oh, you know. We told him he must eat healthy. He's probably gone to that other chicken place <laughs> with the secret herbs and spices. I'm sure he just licked his fingers. You know, you don't know which one I'm talking about. Okay. But he's probably gone to that one. And, and, and did this woman now bring him some food from there? What's going on? They're completely missing the situation. While he's having this interaction, the woman decides this is the right time for her to leave. So she runs down to the village where she comes from. 
The scripture tells us she runs into the village and she says, come and meet a man that told me everything about myself. Could he be the Messiah? Is it possible that this is the Messiah? Because he told me everything about myself. But not only because he told her everything about herself. He told her everything about herself and yet treated her with kindness and dignity. Could it be the Messiah? So while they're having a chicken discussion, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus looks over their shoulders and he sees the village coming out. This woman just witnessed. She just told everybody about a man that she met and what it's done for her. In an hour, possibly, or half an hour discussion she had with Jesus, she says, come and meet a man that tells me everything about myself. Now, Jesus didn't literally tell her everything about herself, but she knew in that moment, he knew everything about her. But yet he loved her. Yet he treated her with grace and respect. So they come back to Jesus, and then Jesus starts talking to them about the harvest. And he says, you think it's still going to be a long time, but I want to tell you the harvest is ready. And in verse 36, he says these interesting words. He says to the disciples, even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests uh, sorry. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. That's an interesting statement. We normally we are used to the idea that the sower sows in tears. We even spoke about it this morning, and it's true and it's right, and we all do it all the time. You sow, then there's time. Then there's harvest. And it's normally the rejoicing is not at the sowing, but it's at the harvesting. Amen? But here Jesus says the sower and the reaper will be united in their joy, will be together in joy. And they just witnessed it. This woman went forth and sowed what she just reaped. And her sowing was producing a harvest all at the same time. The joy was being shared by both the sower and the reaper. Tim Keeler speaks about this. And he, and he says how it's important for us to understand what's going on here. How is it that the sower and the reaper can be joined together in joy? Because the joy is the sowing. The joy is the seed that you are sowing. This woman received joy that moment when Jesus told her about her sin and yet loved her. She received joy. And she took that joy and gave it to other people. And it is that joy that produced the harvest. It was the joy of her salvation that she was experiencing at that moment. You and I, if we are children of God, we have that joy within us. You see, sometimes somebody may ask you, are you a Christian? If somebody asks you that question, how do you answer? How do you answer that question, are you a Christian? Most of us answer that question like this. Of course I'm a Christian. What do you mean? Am I a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. Perhaps the better way to answer that question when somebody asks you, are you a Christian, is this. I know it's hard to believe. It really shouldn't have happened. I know it's, it's completely unlikely that I completely do not deserve it. I know it may be hard for you to believe, but 
I am a Christian. There you have it. I did nothing for it. I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough. Yet, there it is. I am a Christian. I'm a child of God. You see, our problem is our, the joy of our salvation disappears because we start thinking we did something to inherit this faith, this salvation, this forgiveness that we've received. We think, hmm, of course I'm a Christian. Look at me, can't you see I'm a Christian? But here in this moment, this pure moment of infancy of her faith, this woman displays the joy of salvation. I don't deserve it. This man just told me all the horrible things that I've done, everything that has, that has caused me to be ashamed, and yet he loves me. Wow! And she says that with her village. And it is that which is the joy of our salvation. It was ordinary people, those 120 people in that upper room, ordinary people. Nothing fancy about them. Ordinary people that had this encounter with God, that understood they don't deserve to be part of the kingdom, but yet they've been given access. They were people, most of them, that lived by the law all their lives and recognized that no sacrifice on their part would ever get them entrance into the kingdom of God. It's these people that realized that because of Jesus' death on the cross, the veil was torn, and now they can step into the kingdom of God. Not because of anything they did, but because of what Jesus did. It was these people, with that simple message that was in this upper room, praying, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they went and they said to people, it's hard to believe, but we've been given access into the kingdom of God. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing for it. And you can have it also. You can have it also. I want to read for you as I come to an, a close. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of the three psalms that David wrote after he sinned with Bathsheba. And you know the horrible situation. The psalm begins, if you read it in your, some of your translations, it will tell you he wrote this psalm just after Nathan, the prophet, came to him and made him understand how sinful his ways were. Then he writes these words. Let's just listen to this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He's not saying that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. He's just saying, first of all, my sin is a personal offense against a very personal God. Before it hurt anybody else, it hurt God first. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than slow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Dan's poem that he wrote. Did you write that this morning, Dan? He wrote that just after our prayer time. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. You see, this is our struggle. 
We think in the world that we live in today that the message that you are a sinner is a message of rejection. We think that to tell somebody what you have done is a sin is a rejection. But can I tell you the scripture doesn't see it like that. It sees it as a statement of acceptance. You cannot be accepted by God until you recognize your sin. Because when I recognize my sin, I can be forgiven. When I'm forgiven, I can be reunited with God. But that's why it takes such great humility. This woman at the well, when Jesus spoke to her, he, didn't, he wasn't afraid to lay out her sin for her, to describe it for her. Because he wasn't trying to reject her, he was trying to accept her. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made you a separation between you and your God. You see, as long as I hold on to my sin, as long as I try and cover my sin, as long as I try and lessen my sin or say what I'm doing is not sin, I'm continuously causing a separation between me and God. And that separation between me and God is the primary reason for sorrow in this world. Sorrow doesn't come, first of all, from economics. Sorrow doesn't come from education, lack of education. Sorrow doesn't come from lack of health, first of all. Sorrow in this world firstly comes from being separated from God. All those other things are a manifestation of that which is man's greatest malady, man's greatest ailment. I have been separated from God. So when the Christian comes and he says to a person, you're a sinner. That's not a statement to say, I, I want nothing to do with you. That's a statement of saying, like I am. But do you know that God is bigger than our sin? He paid the price for our sin. He didn't sweep our sin under the rug. He didn't ignore our sin. He took our sin and He thrust it upon Christ. So that none of us have to be excluded any longer. I have been forgiven. So David continues to write. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions, transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We don't have to take time to define what your sin is. Let's just accept the fact that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. But let's not be threatened by that statement. Because accepting of that statement, accepting of that condition, positions me in the place where Jesus comes and says, you are forgiven. My blood has washed you clean and pure. Now come, enter in to my kingdom. That's our humility, is to say yes, Lord. And I think simply this, if we continue to understand that, then tomorrow when you go, wherever you go, when whoever you're busy with, you can share that message. You don't have to answer all the questions. You don't have to understand everything about life. But you can understand this, that I was far away from God. But He made a way for me and He has forgiven me. 
I'm no better than anybody else. I've got no inside track, no claim to anything but God's grace that was poured out upon me. And it is the understanding of that that made those 120 people so effective. It was the informal sharing of the joy of their salvation by these individual people that transformed the world. And it's the same for us today. It's the informal, by informal I mean wherever you go, wherever you are, sharing of that. That is the most attractive message that people cannot resist at the end of the day. And that's the joy we have. My joy and your joy. And we sang about it this morning and had such a special time in our worship where the Lord was saying to us, our joy is not about this world. Our joy is about the fact that we have been reunited with Him. You and I can have joy when everything falls apart because I am with Jesus. I have been forgiven. I have been restored. And that is the joy of our salvation. Will you stand with me, please? If you've been feeling that your joy has been waning, that your joy has been under attack, that the things of this world has been swirling in your mind and in your heart and it's been affecting you and, and the stuff going on and you're going, I don't know. And I want to pray for you today. And I want to pray for me and I want to pray for all of us to say, Lord, come and restore to us the joy of our salvation. This beautiful thing that happened to us that nobody can take away from us, that can never change, no matter what the RAND does or the fuel price does or who our president is or who's not our president, no matter what who says or does, Lord, it can never take this away. I have been taken into the kingdom of God. I've been forgiven. Can we pray together? Lord, I thank you for such a simple message this morning. Such a simple awareness for each of us. It's so profound and so beautiful. My sin, as red as scarlet, could not keep you from loving me. I met a man who told me everything about myself. Who removed all my pretense. Who showed me all my lies and my deceit and my duplicity. And yet embraced me. Embraced me by dying on a cross for me. To remove my shame and my guilt from me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray right now that as that truth, we just reminded of that. I pray that the joy of our salvation will well up from within our hearts. As you feel just a sense of thankfulness. And by feel, I don't mean as an emotion necessarily, but as an awareness. You may have emotion attached to it. Won't you just lift your hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Just start expressing joy to him and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I did not deserve it, but 
There it is. You've did it for me. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that this joy that is welling up within me, this thankfulness, Lord, that it will not just remain within me, but like an ancient well, it will spill over, Lord. And it will begin to bring healing to the nations, Lord, we pray. Healing to our city, healing to our friends, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for every testimony in this place. Every person that can say, I am a sinner, but I've been forgiven. Now I'm part of God's household. I found my home. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name. I know we already gave an opportunity for people this morning, and I'm so thankful that we did. It was 100% the right thing to have people just spontaneously come and say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. But as I end the service, I want to invite you that if you have not had the privilege of meeting the man that will tell you everything about yourself, that knows you but yet will love you and embrace you and bring you close, let us pray with you this morning. Our pastors, our elders, our team will be here, our ministry team, and they want to pray with you. Any other need that you may have, please come and let us pray with you. Because we believe in a life-giving God. Amen? Amen. If you would like to come forward for prayer, it will be our privilege to pray for you. We've got baptism happening in the foyer uh, hall. If you want to go there, uh, the function hall, sorry. Please go to the function hall. Remember the elders equipping that's taking place in the different places. Please make use of that opportunity. And the Lord bless you. Until we see you again, please come forward for prayer if you would like some prayer.